And the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash, the Abizrite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the many nights. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Please be seated. Good evening. Man, we are getting close. We are getting close. Good evening. There you all are. It is good to see you this evening. It's good to have our visitors with us. We're thankful for you coming by and, and gracing us uh, with an opportunity to have a little fellowship with you. Hope you have gotten your handout for the evening for your one-page outline of every book. Tonight we're looking at the book of Judges. And excuse me, all those out there in uh, uh, the World Wide Web who sees me scratching my eye, but it itches right now. We've been looking at these books as we see the scarlet thread of redemption running from Genesis through Revelation, God's plan to save man, and if any generation of men needs saving, it is the generation you'll find in Judges. One of the most damning pieces of evidence found in the case against the Israelites in the book of Judges is found around chapter 2 and verse number 10, also found in the last verse of the whole book. You see, while Joshua, our last book that we looked at, and those men who were serving and striving to lead this nation while Joshua was alive, when that generation of men died, there arose a generation that knew not God, nor what he had done for Israel. The fault there is twofold. One, it should have been taught by the parents. Sure. But two, there should have been some desire from that next generation to know. When we look at the book of Judges, it... It practically could be ripped from our headlines. This book is about confusion and disobedience. It is unbelievable to me how an entire nation can be summed up with the phrase, they did what was right in their own eyes. Now, tell me, and be honest with yourself, but tell me that that doesn't sound like us. How many people do we know who are satisfied right where they are? And they're as lost as Job's turkey. Do y'all know that phrase? Did I bring that one from way south? Y'all don't know that one? That means real bad lost. Job's turkey's so lost you can't even find him in the book of Job. Uh, that'll hit you on the way home. They're so lost, but they're so happy being lost. They're so 
complacent where they are that they see no need for serving God. We, we're surrounded by those people, and sometimes even those people are in our families. And this is the group of people we find in the book of Judges. They're happy right where they are. In the book of Judges, there, there are three types of judges. There's a warrior judge, a priest judge, and a prophet judge. And you're going to see at least seven cycles where the nation of Israel is going to serve God for a while. And then they're going to kind of have their belly full. And they're going to move off into idolatrous worship. And they're going to be satisfied there for a while until God begins to punish them for that. Then they're going to cry out because of the oppression, God save us, and he's going to send a, a judge, a savior. And he's going to pull them out of that oppression, bring them back to him, and they're going to serve him for a while. And then they're going to go right back into that cycle, serving those idolatrous gods. And at least seven times, you see this cycle forming where the nation of Israel, and by principle, those who read this book, are not understanding really who God is. They don't look at Him as God. They don't reverence His authority. What they kind of do is say, yeah, that's God. You know, He's there on Sunday and Wednesday. You know, um, it's kind of part of our culture in the South. Well, we go see Him a couple of times a week. He's a good guy. You know, the office of the judge in the book of Judges was a civil office. There is one lady who was a judge whose name was Deborah. The other 16 or 15 were, were men. And, but that is to say that was a civil office. They didn't have anything to do with the idea and the, and the uh, temple worship. And so uh, God would allow uh, her to take that position. It's thought that Samuel wrote this book. It, this book possibly contains the oldest fable known to man, a fable given to us by, by Jotham. But I'd like for you to turn to chapter 6 and 7 tonight as we continue our look at faith from this morning. As we looked this morning, we looked at a faith that uh, was kind of inward. Or faith, rather, that was, that was outward, that, that everyone could see my light and give glory to God uh, because of his blessings. Tonight, we're going to look at the idea of that faith being inward. If you ever had such a rough patch in your life, such a hard time, and we all go through those, at which you question if God is and does who he says he is and what he says he does. Is there ever a time that maybe your faith wavers even just a little bit? If that is the case, pay attention. Are you ready? If, if that's the case, everybody has. We're going to read and study about the life or the, the small portion of the inspired portion of the life of Gideon that we have tonight. And what we're going to find out is that he wasn't sure either. But he didn't stop. When he was unsure, he kept on going. Let's start with Hebrews chapter 11. In order to make our way to Judges chapter 6, let's start in Hebrews chapter 11. And let's notice... 
by, by biblical definition, what is faith? Beginning in verse 1, you'll read that the Hebrews writer writes this. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 2, 4, by it the elders obtained a good report. Through it, verse 3, uh, you see that the worlds were framed uh, by the very word of God. Verse 4, you'll see that by faith, Abel. And in verse 5, by 6, Enoch. And then we make our way all the way down to verse 6, where you'll see the, the wrap-up statement from verses, uh, really from verse 1, where that Hebrews writer would write this, For without faith, without that true biblical faith that can both be seen from the outside and understood on the inside, for without faith it is impossible to please him, for they that come to God must believe that he is. And then that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Since you're making your way toward Judges, go over one book to the book of James. This is the first book written in the New Testament. Some four years or so after Jesus the Christ dies, the half-brother of Jesus writes this, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptation, knowing this, the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, that giveth to all men liberally, and braideth not, and it shall be given to him. But let him... Ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea. For let not that man think he shall receive anything of the Lord. He goes on to say in verse 8 that a double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. As you and I look and we put these two particular sections of Scripture together, what we find is a definition of faith. Uh, that substance of things hoped for, that evidence of things not seen. And then we have a descriptive uh, term about what internal faith is. And it's this. You ready? James chapter 1. A faith not tested is a faith that can't be trusted. The end. A faith that has not been tested is a faith that cannot be trusted that I can make it through those times. I guess the only way to have that system of faith seen outside and known inwardly uh, that no problems ever come about is that when you are raised to walk in newness of life and as you're coming down those steps on either side, I guess we have to hit you in the head with a brick. Because if you go and live out in the world, your faith will be tested, period. It will be. And that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. We kind of look at that like, I don't really want to go through those tests. We go through those tests and we find out how rich and how deep God's love is for us. We find a more intimate prayer life. We get to speak to the creator of the world. He's concerned about my problem. Now let that sink in for a minute. God cares 
about me. Not all, take all of humanity and put them behind you for a second because God cares about you. And that's a comforting thing. And without that faith being tested, we don't know the bounds of that. And you know, I'll, I'll go one further on you. With, even with our faith being tested, it's never tested enough so that we know the end of that. His love is so deep for us. His care is so deep for us, we can't even imagine the end of it. But without those trials and without those temptations and without those questions in our minds, we are comfortable with a superficial faith. Now, we do not have time to read Judges Six and seven. You know about Gideon. You know about his army. You know about his fleece. Right? Somebody shake or nod. Are you guys awake? Okay. Good deal. We know about his fleece and we know about his army. We're going to look at those things uh, in particular, but we're not going to be able to have time to read those. I would encourage you to read these couple of chapters and get that full picture. And we're going to also look at a dream that he had. Let's first notice his call. When you look at where we read, verse 11, 12, 13-ish, you find Gideon, who is going to be called to be a judge or a savior of the nation of Israel, to pull them out of captivity, and you find him inside a wine press. And he's threshing wheat. And, and there's, there's two things I've never done in my life, and that's separate wheat and crush grapes. So really, when I look at this as an overview, I don't really see anything particularly odd here. Until you begin to study the idea of threshing wheat in the ancient world and pressing wine in the ancient world, what you find when they thresh wheat is they go to the highest hill so that they can throw those things, that, that chaff and that, that seed up, and it's separating the wind. The chaff fly off, and the good grain fall down, you just gather that up. And a wine press is enclosed. Now, here's what I know about an enclosure. There's not a lot of wind going through that. Why is he threshing wheat in this place that would seem to be useless for threshing wheat? It's contraband. They're underneath the oppression of the Midianites. The Midianites are trying to starve them to death. And he's trying to eat. And so as he's trying to provide for his family, the, the angel of God comes to him and says, you're the guy God wants. And to which Gideon says, you've got the wrong wine press. You must want one or two over. You're, he doesn't want me. And God says, yeah. Yeah, I do. When God calls Gideon to defend the nation of Israel, Gideon has a lot of self-doubt. He, he looks at himself and says, Can I, is it even possible for me to do something like this? I'm going to need some proof that God wants me to do this. 
So what we find in chapter 6, verse number 36 through about verse 40, is Gideon looking at God and saying, I'm going to need you to prove this to me. To which God says, how would you like me to prove that to you? Gideon would say, I'm going to put a fleece down on the ground, and when the dew comes up in the morning, I want the, the fleece to be wet, but not the ground. Then the next day he says, I want the fleece to be dry, but I want the ground to be wet. I don't know how you make dew. I don't know how you keep something from being wet that's on the dewy ground. But I know the one who does. And because he has that power and because he has that ability, he makes the proofs for uh, Gideon a reality. And that's exactly enough for Gideon, isn't it? Shake your head this way. It's not. Because while God shows him the proofs of this evidence that should be inside him, he says, Okay, so we're going to, to fight this group of Midianites. I'm going to need an army. God would say, yes, you are. 30,000 rather showed up. 30,000. What a great group of men. And God would say to Gideon, that's a lot of folks. Send the ones home who don't want to be here. Now just think. Would you like to go to war with 20,000 guys who really don't want to be there? <laughs> No. So send them all home. They're, they're really not going to help you anyway. He said, okay, so, so we've gotten it down. Now he says, take them down to the river and just tell them to drink. The ones who would lap up water like a dog, having their face down into the river, not being able to see the surroundings around them, send them home. People who would cup that water and bring it up to their mouth so they can see everything around them, keep those guys. Those are going to be the ones who are going to pay attention. It could be bad to be in a, in a battle with folks who don't want to be there. It might be even worse to be in a battle with folks who want to be there who don't pay attention. Keep the ones who pay attention. Well, we ain't got that many, God. We got, we got 300. I wonder. I wonder if it was in, in heaven when, when Gideon informs God that there's only 300 if he giggles to himself and says, that's still too many. You know how many God needs in order to win this battle? It's a nice round number. It's zero. He doesn't need any of them to win this battle. But the nation of Israel needs that to bank on. God gives him an army. Evidence number two, all right, God, I, I think I can do it. I think we have an army. I think you've proven yourself to me, but there's still a nagging and gnawing doubt in the back of my mind that says we can't do this. Which we find in chapter 7, from about verse 9 
through about verse 15. Gideon has a, an odd dream. And God says, go down and sneak down by the tents of the encroaching army. Be quiet and just listen to the conversation. Gideon picks a tent. The conversation going, in, going on inside that tent is between two soldiers. And one soldier says, you know, I had a dream last night. And the, the dream was a couple of loaves of barley bread rolled through our camp. It knocked down every tent and knocked over everybody. To which the other soldier, I don't know if he had credentials to interpret dreams or not. This is what he said. That's Gideon and his army. God, I'm not, sure I can, I'm not sure I can do this. Gideon, the enemy is. The army is. The fleece is. What else do you need? And I, I'll be honest with you. As chapter 7 ends and the battle begins, I'm not sure at that point if Gideon was 100% convinced I'm not sure if there wasn't something gnawing at his back saying, are you sure? Are you sure you're the guy? Are you sure you're supposed to be doing this? Are you sure that was God? When we looked at the idea of that external faith this morning, and we look at the idea of the internal faith this evening, we began to get a picture those on the outside see that light reflecting Jesus the Christ. That faith on the inside is that substance. The evidence. Substance. The word substance there in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 uh, comes from a a uh, carpentry term. And I will just show you all of my carpentry prowess right now. There's sort of skeleton underneath this. That's what I got. I had the opportunity, I guess a year or a year and a half or so back when this sound room was being, I like to say, invented to understand what kind of goes into that. The skeleton that's underneath this particular stage area that allows all of us to stand on here at one time, if we wanted to, would be something called a subflooring. Or, in the first century Koine Greek, it would be called the Substance, the substance, 
the thing that we stand on, that skeleton frame that we stand on. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. That faith that is internal is the evidence of things not seen. There used to be a problem. And the problem was when people would leave their uh, meat and food products out, if they left them out too long, fly larvae would get on those. And I hate to say the other word because it's kind of gross. You know the M word. Y'all know the one I'm talking about, shake or nod. We don't have to say that, right? They would get on there, and so people would think that they would sort of come out of that food. What that fly larvae was, was the evidence that there were flies around. That faith that's internal for us should be the evidence. It should be the fleece. It should be the army. It should be the tent. But sometimes the difference between God's child today and God's child during the book of Judges when uh, Gideon was called is that we refuse the evidence. We need to live lives so that those outside of us are seeing our faith. We need to live lives so that internally we know. We know. Read 1 John 5. You know what his favorite statement in 1 John 5 is? And we know. Can you know you're saved? Well, maybe I think. Can you know you're lost? If you know you're lost, you can know you're saved. Don't ever lose sight of those evidences God is piling up ever before us to say, you are my child. I am providing for you. I will give you those things that will help you through this life. But don't mistake them. Don't mistake them for the things that Satan would say, you need more of this. Everybody needs a little more of that. Now, faith ought to be seen externally and for the Christian ought to be understood internally. Have you had faith enough to be obedient to God's plan? Well, yes or no. And then the question comes up for some, well, we don't even know what God's plan is. Well, I've got good news for you. In about two minutes, you'll never be able to say that again. God's plan is very simple. It's through faith in Him and His authority. If you're willing to repent of your sin, Luke 13, 3 and 5. If you're willing to confess that Jesus is the Christ, Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33. If you're willing to be baptized in water for the remission of your sins, being raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 1 through 4, you can be added to His family. See how easy that is? You know who that's for? 
That's for humanity. All the way across the board, for everyone, not just for a single group of Americans, not just for a single group of Afghanis, not just for a single group of Africans or Australians, but for everybody. The problem lies in thinking that is where obedience to God ends. And we looked at that this morning. Remaining faithful, living faithfully out there in front of the world. We still have to do that, don't we? We still have to be reflections of Jesus the Christ. Have you put on Christ in baptism? Are you a reflection of the Lord? If not... Come home right now to a God that misses you, to a, to a family that loves you right now while we stand and sing for your encouragement.